Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, oh, hang on a second. I seem to have uh, an echo of myself going here. There we go. Okay, sorry. Don't know how my Twitch window got unmuted there, but all right. Anyway, as I was saying, welcome, welcome everybody to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and we are here for session 61 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Session 61, in which we actually get to chapter 11. Now, I know I'm going to have my skeptics on that point because we still have about three and a quarter slides to talk about. Um, not to mention the fact that uh, there are uh, there were like four different people who want to go back and talk more about Mary being attracted to the Black Riders, which we were talking about last time, which is totally fine because that's what we do here. So <laughs> Matt Violinus says, I'm so excited to be a part of this plan. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Before we get uh, started on all of this excitement, one very important announcement. It's not a new announcement. It's an announcement I've made before, but it has become extremely urgent because it is the 29th of May just now. And the on the 31st of May, that is the day after tomorrow, uh, is the deadline for registration for Mythmoot. Uh, and this is very important. So... Um, uh, you know, we want to. We, we already have more than 100 people coming to Mythmoot. Really excited to see everybody. It's going to be an awesome time. Last year was the best Mythmoot ever. Uh, this year is likely to be even better than that. Um, so it's going to be super cool. However, there are only two more days to register. So uh, I've been really glad to see a bunch of people registering over the last this last week as we've been approaching the deadline. Uh, if you have been waiting, the time is now. So. I sure hope that uh, uh, that some of you will be able to uh, come and join us. So don't forget, Thursday is the deadline. Uh, that would be good. So okay, then that is my only announcement tonight because I wanted to really I wanted to really emphasize that. Now, um, let's jump back to the text, or at least let's go back to Mary uh, and. Uh, uh, and the Black Rider. So what I have to do here, I, something some wonderful thing was updated somewhere and uh, it's uh, my computer's no longer letting me resize uh, my uh, Lotro window in the way that I used to always do and I, I won't let me do it now um, I blame Microsoft uh, so anyhow uh, there it is so I have to go like tiny window uh, for now in order to see the slides so that's what we're going to do uh, and then I'll expand it back again when we get to uh, field trip time at the end. Alright, so uh, strange things are afoot at the Prancing Pony. Uh, we are indeed going to get to talk about the strange things going on. Um, of course, the first half of the strange things afoot at the Prancing Pony, uh, that is at the very end of chapter 10, the things which happen, which we discover to have happened upon waking up at the Prancing Pony, finally, on the next day, after the end of this very eventful day, which has spanned the last several chapters, um, we are, uh, uh, we're not, we're definitely not going to get to that. Uh, if we're lucky, we'll get to Fatty Bulger, uh, tonight, but we'll see, uh, we'll see about that. Okay. Anyway, uh, let us look at some of the Mary and the Black Rider comments that we had, cause we had several and I, I kind of lumped them all, uh, onto one slide here. 
Mary's line, there was no horse, stuck out to me, says Zakuria. Unless I'm remembering incorrectly, wouldn't this be Mary's first ever run-in with a black rider? You are absolutely correct. He was not with the group when they encountered the riders in the Shire, and so only has their stories to go on about what these black riders are like. He did also see the one from a distance, the one that was on the landing there at the Buckleberry Ferry, but uh, he only saw that after they were already out of the river, so he's never encountered one up close, or really seen one uh, up close. It's interesting that Mary is able to recognize that it is a black rider based on the feeling of dread he encountered. Um, And I think that's actually a really interesting point. And we kind of touched on that, but not too much last time. Um, That is, I touched on the fact that he makes a big deal about the fact that there isn't a horse, right? Um, You know, he's like, it was a black rider. It didn't have a horse, but it was totally a black rider, right? Um, uh, But we didn't, I didn't talk about like, well, if it didn't have a horse, how did he know it was a black rider, right? Uh, I mean, how do you recognize a black non-rider, right? If you've never seen one before. Um, uh, but anyways, so Zakuria's theory is that, um, you know, it's by the feeling of dread that he encountered because he will have heard Pippin and Frodo and Sam's descriptions, uh, not to mention his own observations of Farmer Maggot, which, remember, had a big impact on him when he saw Farmer Maggot um, and saw how scared he was, you know, him, Farmer Maggot of all people. Um, so I think that that's a really good theory that, you know, when he experiences, when he feels what he feels, he... Uh, um, can uh, understand, you know, can, can uh, uh, you know, believe that it's a black rider and what it is and who it is and what it's doing. Anyway, okay, sorry, but I was saying, let's see, uh, right, perhaps it is in part due to his inexperience with the riders that he feels more compelled to follow the rider, not really knowing what he is dealing with. Further, having the least experience with black riders, that possibly explains why Mary's account is more vague when he comes to the house. He seems not entirely sure whether the voices belong to black riders or to regular men. Yes. Okay, so, first of all, um, the fact that he doesn't hear them... Okay, so... uh, Okay, hang on, let me back up again. So... Yes, he does have less experience. So I agree that it is interesting, and I do agree with you that I think it's it's the feeling of encountering the Black Riders that does convince him, like, dude, this this guy, although he's walking, right, although he's on foot, this must be one of those Black Riders that I've heard about. Um, I agree that it's the dread inspired that, that presumably leads him to that. However, although he is ignorant of the Black Riders, having never encountered one um, in person before... I can't think that that has anything to do with his compulsion. Mostly just be- he describes it in a more positive way than that. And, and I, I don't mean positive in the sense of, like, good or wholesome. I mean positive in the sense of something being present instead of something being absent, right? So that is to say, he doesn't just, like, follow them because he kind of wants to. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't describe being afflicted by curiosity. He says he seems to be drawn somehow. Like, he has this sort of sensation that something outside himself is pulling him along after the Black Rider. Um, he speaks as if this were not really his idea. Remember, he's, uh, he's rebutting the question of, like, what, you know, Strider said it was brave but foolish. And he says, you know, neither brave nor silly, I think, right? You know, basically, he can't take credit for either one. Um, you could say that it was brave and dumb, and he's like, it was neither brave nor dumb. I wasn't really driving the bus at that point, is basically how he's responding there. Um, so... 
anyway, that so I, I, I think that his description of the compulsion to follow is much more positive than can really be explained just by, like, he didn't know any better, so he went, right? So th- there, I think, there's definitely something more going on. Um, and as far as the account of, of uh, his account being vague, that's because he was, well, f- a couple things. First of all, uh, there needn't be much... Uh, we don't have to look very far, I think, for an explanation for why he didn't hear the voices very distinctly. Um, you know, it was night and they were far away and he they were not talking very loud. You know, so he didn't get super close because he's one of them anyway. Is standing, they're talking over the hedge, which means that one of them is standing, uh, one of them, presumably the Nazgul, is standing right there in the road, right? Um, so, and there's not much in the way of cover. So, you know, he's kind of creeping along the hedge and, and coming closer, but he's not right on top of them in order to be able to hear their conversation really clearly. So the indistinctness with which he hears the voices, I am willing mostly to attribute to just not being close enough really to hear what they were saying, Just, but he's able to make out that there are people talking, basically. Um, however, there is another factor there, and that is the fact that he comes under the influence of the Black Breath. Now, this is something that we kind of didn't get to. This is why I said, I think I said three and a quarter slides still left of chapter 10. Uh, and that's because I, I want to go back to the last one that we were on last time, because I wanted to, we didn't talk enough, I think, about the Black Breath issue at the end of that slide. So I wanted to I wanted to come back to that in a second. So JJ says he's experiencing some sort of enchantment. Possibly. You know, JJ, I wonder. It's an interesting way to think about it. Um, I'm not sure if I would use that word. Of course, it's such an important word uh, in Tolkien's world. Um, I think it's possible that we could think of this as some kind of enchantment, but... Um, Normally, enchantment is when you're kind of taken out of yourself. So, enchantment is the the logical extreme uh, of on the sort of artistic spectrum, right? When uh, when so it's like when a painting is so uh, beautifully detailed and realistic that you mistake it for the real thing, right? Um, that's you keep going down the spectrum past that in terms of realism and uh, the extent to which an artistic creation comes alive before you and you get enchantment, right? Um, and uh, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question, JJ. I, that would be that would be a really interesting thing to consider, actually. Compare and contrast, um, to compare and contrast the effect that the Nazgul have on people with the effect that elves have on people, right? I mean, you think about it, like, the more you think about it, there are some definite similarities there, right? I mean, remember Thorin and company? So, like, you approach them and then you, like, suddenly, like, everything goes black and you fall over? Thorin Oakenshield could attest to that, right? Bilbo could attest to that. That's exactly what happens to them in Mirkwood. So, you know, like, it's, there are some, there are some similarities. Um, uh, 
Yeah, JJ, you think about the enchantment that's attached to the the water in the Black River in Mirkwood also, right? Mirkwood, again, the enchantment, the elvish enchantment in Mirkwood, it's not much, I mean, what the Black Riders do isn't much like the elvish enchantment that we see working in Lothlorien, for instance, but what we see in Mirkwood, especially in The Hobbit, there are definitely uh, some some similarities. Um yeah, yeah. Now I agree, Tom. That was my first impulse too. Tom says that the effect of the black breath is about is about domination, like the overwhelming of the will and consciousness of a person, which is characteristic of the devices of the enemy, but not of enchantment. And that was my very first reaction, Tom. I think I was, you know, my my first. I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's not that much like enchantment. But but again, the more I think about it, the more I can see. Um, the more I can see some similarities. Again, not with. Uh, like the f- uh, fairy and drama kind of thing, uh, one of Tolkien's vocabulary words from uh, on fairy stories. Again, that like a fiction enacted in front of you so realistically that you become a part of it. Um, not much like that, but definitely like um, like the the Mirkwood enchantments that we see uh, in the Hobbit. There are some similarities there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, so what I, but we'll, hang on, we'll, I say we'll come back to talk about the Black Breath more. Suffice to say, I think his coming under the influence of the Black Breath also has to do with, uh, something to do with why he does not, is not able to report more clearly, uh, what the people, what the, the dudes were talking about over the hedge. Um, now, Kate was responding to that and said, I wonder whether Mary's actions here and later are related to his experience in the Barrow, which would have happened only the day before. In fact, really kind of that same day, right? Um, the morning, you know, he just woke up from the sleep he took in the barrow, right? So his barrow experience was less than 24 hours ago uh, at this point. Uh, anyway, okay, right. Mary is the one who feels the pain and suffering of the barrow's original inhabitant, who Tolkien says in the appendices was the last prince of Cardolan who died fighting the forces of Angmar, which was led by the Witch King, who was the leader of the Nazgul. Was Mary in some way sensitized to the presence of the Nazgul? And might that have even been the source of the restlessness which kept him out of the common room to, out in the uh, kept him out of the common room to begin with, right? What led him to want to go for a walk in the first place? Possibly. Possibly. Um it's it's a really interesting idea, this idea of his being kind of sensitized to it based on his recent experience uh in the barrow. Uh It's interesting because what I want to—I guess the thing that I want to say is that I feel like Mary's time in the Barrow is is kind of like a confounding variable that I hadn't considered. Right? That is to say, <clears throat> last time I was kind of excited to think about Mary <clears throat> as a kind of control group. Right? Uh, that is, it's one of the only times we see the the kind of impact that the proximity of the Nazgul have with somebody who's not carrying the ring and has never touched the ring, right? We almost never see that. We get that from Frodo's perspective a bunch of times. Well, not a bunch, but several times. Um, And yet he has the ring. And so one of the things that I was suggesting last time is that Mary's experience really, for me, kind of calls into question where are the boundaries, right, between the, the effect that the Nazgul are having 
of themselves and the effect the ring is having on Frodo, right? And I think that, that there is a scene there, um, but I think it's not all ring. Uh, and I think that, you know, one to, for me, one of the effects of our close reading of this, uh, of, of this experience of Mary's is for me to kind of go back and, and, and rethink a little bit or maybe kind of suspect that we might have oversimplified a little bit uh, Frodo's experience really only in thinking of those as um, ring-induced phenomena. Clearly they are ring-induced phenomena. The ring is obviously very active in those earlier scenes, like when he wants to put on the ring uh, when the Nazgul is approaching him right before Gildor uh, and uh, his friends show up singing. But it's, I think, the similarity between the initial impulse that Frodo has and the impulse that Mary describes uh, and that we see him, Frodo, having on several other occasions when he's in close physical proximity to Nazgul uh, seems to uh, suggest that it's not, that's not just, uh, this is the ring seizing the occasion of the Nazgul's effect on him to try to tempt him in a particular ring-oriented direction, rather than just being an impulse that comes directly from the ring. Um, so, anyway, yeah, uh, but, but so as I said, I, I like to think of Mary as a kind of control group, right? So here's how somebody totally untouched by the one ring is affected by the Nazgul, so that helps us to understand what is the effect of the Nazgul without the ring in the equation at all, right? That's what I was kind of excited about last time. But, Kate, you're kind of ruining that for me now, because if there is a way in which Mary's recent experience, in which his in, there's a sense, you could say, in which Mary's mind has kind of been opened to other experiences outside his normal experience, right? And does that impact him? Um, is he drawn in some way? Is his restlessness? I think that's a really great point, Kate. Uh, is his restlessness in part because he's still in some way affected um, by what, you know, has he been changed in some way, even some small and perhaps sort of I'm, subliminal isn't exactly the right word, but um, uh, kind of below the surface anyway, way, um, you know, that kind of leads to this. I don't know. Um, but as I say, it does, it does make him a less, uh, uh, a, a less perfect control group, I would say. Um, and uh, Mad Violinist, I would say that his restlessness does not strike me as similar to Frodo's at the house of Tom Bombadil, because Frodo is not experiencing restlessness prior to putting on the ring. After he puts on the ring, he's like, and now I should go. Right. And there's no reason for him to go. There's like no impetus for him to go. Um, it doesn't jive with anything that he had been feeling. That's um, one of the um, I mean, I would say, interestingly, that moment, his temptation to walk out of the room and leave the house of Tom Bombadil strikes me as one of the most like unadulterated ring impulses. Right. Like, for instance, his desire to put on the ring and escape from the barrow like there's a lot of like his own native like sense of self-preservation that goes into that. I mean, he's afraid and he wants to run away. Who wouldn't be in those circumstances? Right. So again, the ring seems to be 
playing on his fear, right? Taking advantage of his fear in order to say, and I can help you with that if you like, right? So it's, it's, uh, you know, w- when the temptation is all, you know, is all queued up there, the ring pounces on it there in the house of Tom Bombadil, that ring impulse seems to be in that sense without temptation. You see what I mean? Like there doesn't seem to be any impetus for it at all. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um Yeah. Um I agree mad violinist that there is a kind of similarity in what the two things are sort of affecting, right? Drawing Mary along after uh, out alone in the streets and um Frodo leaving everybody else behind. But to me, a really critical difference there is the consciousness of it. That is, the Nazgul isn't attempting to separate Mary from the herd. It's the Nazgul does not is. There's no evidence the Nazgul is aware of Mary before Mary has crept up and is trying to eavesdrop uh, on them at the hedge. Right. So they've come all the way down from the prancing pony to the south gate before the Nazgul is even aware of them, right? This seems to be just an effect that the Nazgul has on, well, on Mary anyway, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, whereas, again, the ring is, uh, that impulse seems to be different in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, Oakwig does say in uh, uh, rebuttal of Kate's suggestion that Tom Bombadil's cleansing of the barrow, uh, not to mention the running naked on the grass therapeutic efforts, uh, should have cleansed the effect of the barrow, so Mary shouldn't be feeling, um, you know, continued symptoms of, you know, barrow sickness uh, at this point. That's true, but... Eh, but here, Oakwig, this would be my rebuttal of that. Um, although Mary would no longer be in the grip of the evil power of the Barrow, that doesn't mean that the memory of it would leave. Um, and based on what we see in Tolkien elsewhere, I don't see any reason to believe that he would be, even once healed, would be then unchanged by the experience. Right. So the idea that he might be changed in some way... Um, seems to me entirely appropriate, right? Entirely uh, uh, sort of normal and believable. Um, Yeah, anyway, okay. Um, Okay. So I don't know about that, but it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, there's there's really very little to support it. Directly, that is, that his effect on the, his experience in the Barrow impacted him here. Um, but as one of you was just saying a little bit earlier on, I forget which one of you it was, um, there is a really kind of interesting breadcrumb trail that leads uh, from Mary to the to the Witch King, right? Eventually, uh, in uh, at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, last question. I think Mary was carrying some barrow blade wound about with spells for the Bane of Mordor that he carried, was carrying the same barrow blade that he carried when he snuck up after and killed the Witch King. 
Yes, yes, that sword which he is going to, uh, 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 with which he is going to stab the Witch King's mighty knee, uh, is in fact uh, being carried by Mary already at this point. Perhaps one of those spells draws uh, the possessor of the blade toward the, toward Nazgul, so the blade can be used and thus fulfill its destiny. I am less convinced by this idea. Um, it is conceivable to me that such a thing could happen, but the main reason I don't buy this is that I don't see much cause to see things having this sort of a... This is essentially... It's a little proactive, I think, is I guess how I would say it. Um, If something has a destiny... It's going to fulfill it. I don't see that it's going to force its possessor to fulfill it in so direct a way as this, right? Um, it it might have been, in, it was you know intended to strike against not only the servants of uh, Mordor, but even specifically the servants of Angmar, right? Um, you know, the Witch King and his minions. So... It may have been intended for that reason, and thus, as the narrator will tell us, its uh, you know its maker would have been really excited to learn its ultimate fate, right on the Battle of Pelennor Field. That may be so, but that to 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 then take that to say that the sword is itself exerting some kind of force upon uh, Mary to like that the compulsion to follow them comes from the sword that I just that I just can't see. Um, and, uh, I, I can't think of any, not even, not even like conscious swords, <laughs> you know, like Unglachel who speaks to Turin, um, not even they act like this, um, you know, forcing people to do things, right? Um, uh, even when Unglachel talks at the end, it's only to agree to something Turin has suggested, right? Um, it's not like it seeks Turin's blood, and so therefore, it's not like Turin's Turin's suicide is down to Anglachel. It's not. It's not its idea, right? It's Turin's idea. Turin Turin asks the sword, "Will you slay me swiftly?" And Anglachel is like, "Can do, boss. No problem, right?" So I mean, it's it's not it's not like again the sword isn't acting on its own. Um, so yeah, and, and, and Tony, exactly. It's for me, it is kind of not only a kind of mechanical issue, but also, um, but also, uh, uh, a sort of a theological issue. Fate, the way that fate works is more complicated than that. Um, and anyway, that's not what wound about with spells for the bane of Mordor means. It just means that, uh, they wound it about with you know they made it with spells that are designed to slay that are like antipathetical to dark things right designed to slay creatures of Mordor like if they are struck by it right not that doesn't mean that it's like a homing device or a divining rod or um uh you know it's uh what's that um wasn't there a Bugs Bunny sketch about the way? Doesn't he? Doesn't Bugs Bunny at one point get a sword that drags him all over the place and does a thing? 
Am I remembering, am I dredging up vague Looney Tunes memories from 30 years ago or 40 years ago But the singing sword? Yeah, that that's it, right? No, that's not it. That's not how this works. It's not like Bugs Bunny. Um, uh, again, that's not what wound about for, uh, with spells for the Bane of Mordor means. And again, it's just, it's not, it's not how, uh, it's not how anything i don't there's no evidence of anything ever working like that um uh in uh in tolkien's world so i disbelieve that um but uh anyway okay so i think you know again all things considered i think that the compulsion comes from the uh the nazgul and again here i just you know, Frodo is a more complicated example because there's the ring involved as well. But but again, this happens with Frodo too consistently. Um, we 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 saw it happen back in the Shire. We're going to see it happen again before too long at Weathertop. We're going to see it happen way down the road um, in Minas Morgul again. Um, we're going to see it happen in, uh, on Kirith Ungol. Um, it, it's this this is a this is a, a pretty consistent phenomenon when the Nazgul are near that others are drawn to them. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Bronier has put in a picture <laughs> of Bugs Bunny and the singing sword. There it is. Bugs Bunny and the Singing Sword. That's what I was remembering. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that Mary's sword is like that. Um, but, um, uh, and I find myself reluctant, reluctant to, um, lean too heavily on Mary's sword. Um, even though as mad violinist, thanks, uh, for the, uh, uh, for the credit there. Um, uh, Zephan. Uh, so, um, just as, uh, I, I, I'm, there is a, an, a really interesting breadcrumb trail and I love how it works out. Like when you look back at the whole thing and see, uh, you know, kind of the way that Mary's sort of destiny is fulfilled and how looking back on it in retrospect, we can see these kind of hints towards the ultimate role you know, the biggest single uh, 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 role that Mary is going to play in the War of the Ring. It's really cool, right? It's really great, but I don't like it the other way around. It doesn't seem to me to work the other way around. Um, And let me explain what I mean by that. When you get to Mary stabbing the Witch King and look back, right, and you can see these little, these breadcrumbs, right? Um, that experience of his in the barrow, uh, after which he receives the sword. This uh, experience of his going off in pursuit of the Nazgul, right? In Bree. Yeah, it's, there's lots of cool stuff that we can see, which look really neat in retrospect. But if we come at it from the other end, if we come at it from this end, and sort of bring backwards... Mary's fate and say the fate is driving him right this is we see this pushing towards then it it doesn't work so much because the, the touches are more delicate than that right it's one of those things and this I think is a thing which is actually really important in seeing how fate works right fate doesn't compel you in advance um the f- in general the uh 
when a doom is laid upon someone in Tolkien's world, when someone has a particular destiny, it is not like looming over them like the prophecy of Oedipus, right? Shaping their entire lives, um, uh, you know, and them like trying to fulfill it or trying to escape it or whatever. Normally, it's like Mary's. Yeah, yeah, it's... We see what his, when it happens, we see what his destiny was. And looking back, we can say, oh, that's really cool. You can see how now in retrospect, those things point to it, right? But if we try to do it the other way, if we try to bring that fate backwards and say this fate has been kind of looming over him all the way along, um, it, uh, it not only is less interesting, it works less well. It's just, and, and it's, I think, not true to how, uh, fate and destiny works uh, in Tolkien's world. So um, that's why I find myself a little bit resistant to go too far uh, in that. Um, observe that it's cool, and then we'll move on, <laughs> right? Because uh, I think otherwise we start to kind of make a mistake about it. Um, and yes, Tom, there is the possibility of escaping doom, even for Turin. I agree. Had he gone after Fendulas, uh and prevented her death, uh, which was in his power to do, um, probably, uh, then uh, then his doom could have been otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mary is the slayer, <laughs> says Tom. Now you're just causing mischief. Um, uh, so am I buying the notion of Mary is destined uh, to slay being part of the slaying of the Witch King? Well, yeah, because it happens, right? So, I mean, like, it's... Uh, that's... Um, yeah, uh, hang on. Hang on. Um, see, that's a trick question, right? Of course he's destined to be part of the slaying of the Witch King. Um, because he was, right? I mean, I, I, but again, that's the thing, right? That's how the doom often often happens. Um, and it's not about debating free will and predestination, Mad Violinist. It's about, like, that Tolkien marries predestination and free will, which is traditional Christian doctrine, right? Um, he... he um, he he marries those two things in his fiction as well as anybody I know who's ever done it. Um, so if you try to pull them apart in Tolkien's work, I don't think it's going to work out. Um, so uh, anyway, it's it, so so yeah. No, there's there's uh, it's not um, it's not an argument. Yeah, it's all in Boethius, Tom. Absolutely. What do they teach them in these schools? Speaking of which, let's move on. It's time. Okay, so. We had uh, we spent some time talking about the heroism of Nob very appropriately here, right? Uh, this is Nob's greatest mo- moment. But as I said, we didn't talk en- enough about the Black Breath, so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, Mary got up and ran back like a hare. I'm afraid it's true, said Mary, though I don't know what I said. I had an ugly dream, which I can't remember. I went to pieces. I don't know what came over me. I do, said Strider, the black breath. The riders must have left their horses outside and passed through the south gate in secret. They will know all the news now, for they have visited Bill Fernie, and probably that southerner was a spy as well. Something may happen in the night before we leave Bree. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, first, let's look at what happens to Mary under the end. So, Strider diagnoses this as the black breath. 
Um, so first, let's look at what, in fact, are the symptoms of the black breath, as far as, because Mary is our first example um, of, of that phenomenon, right? Um, first, we have his verbal testimony as given to, like, while under the influence of the black breath, he said, I thought I had fallen into deep water. He doesn't even remember saying that, right? Much less experiencing it. Um, he can't remember now, but he, he has the experience, he has the memory of having a dream, right? He had a, a dream, an ugly dream, which apparently, based on Nob's testimony, would seem to be have, have something to do with falling into deep water, right? Now, of course, and some of us were, some, some of you were reminding us last week that Mary is the one who dreamed of floodwaters in the house of Tom Bombadil, right? So this seems to be a bit of a trend uh, for Mary. Maybe the, the, uh, the Brandy Bucks have not, in fact, completely shed their fears of water, even though they are so much more confident in boats than Gamgees are, for instance. Uh, yet, nevertheless, it seems there still is just a touch uh, of hydrophobia somewhere in Mary's subconscious here. Um, but, um, okay, so, but I also think this might not necessarily be literal. That is, he doesn't necessarily need to be literally dreaming of water as he was literally dreaming of water flooding in and filling the room uh, in the house of Tom Bombadil. Um, the description, I thought I had fallen into deep water, could simply be a description of his experience of, like, not that the dream was a dream about water, but that he was submerged as deeply in, like, the metaphorically, the dream was itself like water. So falling into this ugly dream was like being immersed in deep water and being drawn down and he was afraid of being drowned, right? Um, I actually incline towards that reading, again, that when he says, I thought I had fallen into deep water, he's sort of speaking metaphorically. Um, we'll get some more data on this. Um, not soon. <laughs> In the House of the Healing. <laughs> so stay tuned in about seven to 12 more years and we'll get right back to this passage uh, when we talk about that. We're totally, we are totally, I promise you, I promise you that in, you know, 12 years time or however long it takes for us to get through the houses of healing, I will bring this slide back and we will talk about this passage again in connection with Aragorn's experiences with Faramir and Eowyn in the Houses of Healing, but, um, anyway, uh, uh, um, nevertheless, clearly this sense of whether he was literally dreaming about being drowned in water or whether he was lost in the dream like water, um, he, he clearly was, uh, it was an ugly dream. It was a dream of death. It was a dream of losing himself. It was a dream of being, uh, sort of, you know, swamped and helpless and surrounded. Um, uh, and he says that he went to pieces and doesn't know what came over him. Right. And remember his own experience when, you know, he was like, he was there and he was listening and then he fell over. Right. And he doesn't know what happened to him. Um, and this is where Strider says, oh yeah, yeah, no, I know what that was. That was, that was the black breath. Um, 
so the effect of the black breath is to what? See, here's here 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 are the questions that I'm trying to work on. There are a couple things here. Number one. Most of the people in conversation, we've seen now several people, we've seen or heard of, really. In fact, we've never seen it happen firsthand at all. But we have now several secondhand accounts of Nazgul in conversation with folks, right? None of those people keeled over and experienced the effects of the Black Breath, right? Bill Fernie is having a conversation across the hedge with the Nazgul and he's not keeling over, right? Farmer Maggot felt nervous, right, was scared, and so were his dogs, but he didn't fall over and experience the black breath. Gaffer Gamgee had a conversation with a black rider right on his doorstep, and he, too, experienced no black breath-like symptoms. So uh, Mary is, in fact, the first of the several people who have been in close physical proximity, in conversational proximity to a black rider. Um... Did not experience. Mary is the only one yet um, to have experienced this phenomenon, right? Um, what this seems to me to suggest very strongly is that it's not just an area of effect phenomenon, right? This is not just an AOE spell where, like, everybody who comes within a five foot radius of a Nazgul experiences the black breath. Right. That's clearly not the case. Um, as we, you could even you could potentially argue that I don't know what does it can can they withhold it? Is it conscious? Right. Um, that is, if they're trying to have it, because it would be pretty hard to get information off of people if everybody you talk to just swooned and you know hit the deck after like twenty. You now they just come into your proximity and are like you know fainting dead away. So clearly. <laughs> that would be that they have to be able to control it to some extent or else things would get kind of ludicrous. Um, so, OK, um, but. Um, what then with Mary? So if it's conscious in the sense that they can, it's a it's it's a thing that they do to someone, uh, you know, sort of knowingly uh, and uh, uh, maliciously. Does that mean he was aware of Mary? I suspect so. Pontine, yes, that's exactly what I would say. That the Nazgul used it on Mary because he was following and sneaking. So as soon as the Nazgul became aware of the fact that there was some dude creeping up on him, you know, along the hedge, the black the, the Nazgul's like response was to turn and like black breath him, right? Uh, what he, he like black breathed on him or something. Maybe it's like a breath weapon. Who knows? I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying not to put it in Dungeons and Dragons terms or in Lotro terms either. Um, but he must have afflicted him with the black breath on purpose, right? Because he was, uh, so, I mean, he, he put the whammy on Mary. That does seem to be, uh, to me what happened. Um, and then apparently, I mean, I think we can reconstruct this relatively well, right? He's talking to Bill Fernie, getting the news from Bill Fernie. Mary sneaks up. He whammies Mary with the black breath, right? Turns back to Bill Fernie and says, take care of 
this one, right? Find out what he knows, whatever, but get rid of him, right? And uh, I'm going to go and report to the boss what you just told me about the, you know, the person. So, um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I think that's, I, I think that has to be what happened. Um, because again, it can't just be an effect anybody has when they come into contact with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so I think, what was the other thing I was going to say about the Black Breath? First, the question of its being conscious. Okay, right. Second, then obviously, is what exactly are the symptoms? Like, what what is it? So, they can, this is a, a deliberate, this is a whammy they can choose to put on people, right? Fine. What What is it? Like, wh- how does it? work. Um, it does, uh, Belangspawn, seem to have something to do with visions and dreams, right? At least, again, that's that's Mary's experience of it. Um, and I think it's, um, again, dreams and, like, some kind of dream world. Spoilers, but that's kind of, especially with Faramir, the, the, the description that we get of Aragorn calling Faramir back. Um, is clearly from some kind of dream world. Aragorn goes like dream walking after him. Now, I'm not going to talk about that too much because we don't have the text for that and we're, we're, we're years away from that text. But, um, but suffice to say, I think that some correlation here, and this makes sense to me. Um, this makes sense to me because you think about one of the fundamental facts of life or, on life or whatever of the Nazgul, um, is this well peculiar relationship between the body and the spirit, right? Um, the Nazgul are all about disjunction between body and spirit, right? That's kind of like their problem from the beginning. Um, well, okay, not absolutely the beginning, um, but, um, but yet they have issues with their body and their spirit, right? So what effect do they have on people? They affect their spirits, right? Not their bodies. Mary's body isn't harmed. Um, Mary's body's fine. Um, he's not poisoned or anything like that, right? It's just like his spirit is, what, enmeshed, captured, um, sent away? Like, I, you know, he loses touch. His body and his spirit lose touch with each other for at least a little while, right? Um, and it's not until the Nazgul departs and the heroic knob appears that Mary's spirit and body come back together, right? And have their reunion, which leads to him pelting back to the prancing pony like a hare, which is a perfectly sensible thing to do under the circumstances. Um, uh, so... Yeah. Um, anyway, it, we don't just one data point. It's hard to draw conclusions from one data point. Right. But um, the fact that they did something to his to his mind, to his spirit seems fairly clear from his description that it was like dreaming. Right. Um, uh, Belongsman asks, is it something actually inhaled? <sighs> no, I'm going to I'm going to. I uh, is it an assumption? 
I believe, I think he's being metaphorical there. It's not that they don't have like actual lungs anymore. Remember spirit, they have body issues, right? The Nazgul. So I don't, they don't actually have lungs per se. They can hiss, I guess, so, and speak and stuff. But do they have lungs? Are they actually, is air actually moving? I don't really know. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like try to get too much into thinking about the, you know, the, the mechanics and like the, you know, the hydraulics of, uh, of, of the, you know, Nazgul uh, speaking apparatus. Um but in any case, I don't think that it's a physical breathing thing. Um, I know they do have mighty knees, Tom. I mean, at least they have knees, and some of their knees are particularly mighty. Uh, so, yeah, it's not that they have no bodies. Could they, I mean, because would he, cause does he have lungs? Are his lungs just in a peculiar sort of position? I don't know. But I really don't think that it's physical breath. I don't think this is a matter of, because, again, first of all, it's not like, Anyone who breathes again, it's 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 it's, it's conscious, right? So this is not uh, uh, it is a conscious thing that they choose to afflict them with. Also, the Faramir's coming under the black breath. Now it's a it's a little dicey on the details, right? We don't get a, a description of what happened with Faramir and everything, but. From all the descriptions of the battle in which Faramir uh, sustained his uh, whammy, his Nazgul whammy, um, he wasn't that close to the Nazgul. They were all winged. None of them were on the ground. Only the 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 witch king returned to, to the ground to ride a horse. The other eight of them are all up in the sky, and he wasn't there. It wasn't the Naz- it wasn't the witch king um, who whammied Faramir. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely, uh, uh, metaphorical. Yeah, good. Uh, just as the, just as the, the plague, uh, had been called the black breath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, yeah, Matt says, when the Nazgul caused the defenders of Minas Tirith to falter, they're spreading a despair-like fear over large groups. This one appears to be a focus of a similar power on a single person, uh, with an almost contemptuous offhand slap. Yeah, and, and, and seems to be, with Faramir at least, they seem to be able to do it from some kind of distance, right? Um... And of course, it makes all kinds of sense. Here's Faramir, the only one who's holding together the defense, which is uh, retreating in increasing. He's the only one pre- preventing it from becoming a, a complete slaughter. So that the Nazgul swooping around would would like select him out for long distance whammying with the black breath makes all kinds of sense, right? But again, I don't think we need to imagine them like, you know physically blowing or spitting at Faramir in order to accomplish this deal. So that's one of the main reasons why I'm really unwilling to think of it in those kinds of mechanical, um, mechanical terms. Um, uh, and, uh, JJ asks, is it some, is it, it's, uh, is it some sense of showing the victim, the wraith world? That's exactly JJ where kind of where I was going when I first started talking about that, that, um, I wonder if the kind of experience that Mary has, feeling like he's falling into deep water, I, th- I wonder if that place from which 
Aragorn calls Faramir's spirit back in the in the Return of the King. I wonder if there is not some similarity between that kind of spiritual experience that they're having while under the effect of the Black Breath and what happens to a ring bearer who wears the one ring and becomes invisible, right? Um, and in particular, what the wraithification process is about, right? What what would it look like? What would it be like for you, for your conscious mind, for your spirit? Um, is that what happens? Like your body is still functioning, but your spirit has got like you've sunk down into the deep water, right? You're you're you've gone off wherever Faramir's spirit was going and and hasn't come back, right? So that you still function, but you, um, uh, but you uh, uh, you know, you're no longer at home. Um, that's, uh, um, uh, that's, seems to me possible that there's some connection there, even likely, uh, that those things are in some way related, though it, you know, we don't have nearly enough detail, uh, to be able to, you know, write a treatise on that. But, but JJ, that's kind of exactly where I'm tempted to, to kind of go with it. Um, yeah, um... Okay, good. Uh, are the Nazgul showing Mary what they themselves have suffered? Well, it's quite likely. Um, and JJ, remember, that's what the Barrow White was doing, right? Cold be hand and heart and bone, right? And cold be seat under stone. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that would be, that would make, that'd be familiar, right? Um, yeah, good. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. So that was one quarter of a slide. So we're right on pace to finish up. Um, okay. Uh, what will happen? Said Mary. Will they attack the inn? No, I think not. Said Strider. They are not all here yet. And in any case, that is not their way. In dark and loneliness, they are strongest. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. Not until they are desperate. Not while all the long leagues of Eriador still lie before us. But their power is in terror, and already some in Bree are in their clutch. They will drive these wretches to some evil work, Fernie and some of the strangers, and maybe the gatekeeper, too. They had words with Harry at Westgate on Monday. I was watching them. He was white and shaking when they left him. We seem to have enemies all round, said Frodo. What are we to do? Stay here, and do not go to your rooms. They are sure to have found out which those are. The hobbit rooms have windows looking north and close to the ground. We will all remain together and bar this window and door. But first, Nob and I will fetch your luggage. Okay. Um, who will attack the inn? This is difficult. Um, this is something that I think I got wrong for many years. Um, and, of course, Peter Jackson has not helped this at all. The Nazgul do not enter the Prancing Pony. The Nazgul, I am not sure, can enter the Prancing Pony. It is not the Nazgul that stab the beds and slash the bolsters in the Hobbit's rooms. Um, can't blame Peter Jackson for depicting it that way. The way that he staged those scenes was very effective. Um, 
But that is obviously not what happened, right? Mary asks, will they, the Nazgul, attack the inn? And Strider says, no, I think not. And he gives lots of reasons why he thinks they won't, right? That's not how they operate. Um, They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people, not until they're desperate. And they're not desperate. Why should they be desperate? While all the long leagues of Eriador still lie before us. Uh, this is this is Strider being comforting, right? Oh, don't worry, you know they're not going to attack us because they're going to have thousands of more chances to attack us when we're off in the dark in the middle of nowhere, far from help, right? So that being the case, there is no way they are going to try to force uh, the prancing pony. Um, now, let me just say there are several reasons, even quite aside from Peter Jackson, uh, why there's lots of... Re- why like justifications for being confused uh, about this passage and about what happens here. Uh, first, um, we have... Like, it's hard to avoid the image of the Witch King with his knife, right, coming in and stabbing Frodo on Weathertop, right? So we've seen the Nazgul get all stabby with Frodo, and here's somebody who apparently tried to stab Frodo in his bed. That, like, sounds like something the Nazgul would do, right? So there's that, like, there's that connection. There's also the immediate juxtaposition with Crick Hollow, right, where the Nazgul do, in fact, go into Crick Hollow themselves in person, right? Like, on the next page, they're going to do that uh, at the very beginning of Chapter 11. Um, But they don't do that here. Um, And it's the way that that's juxtaposed, right? So we've got the night before, the end of the night before, when they're like, what will happen? I don't know. Maybe the inn's going to be attacked. Let's stay here just in case, right? And then we have the transitional scene. Meanwhile, that night, the Nazgul sneak into Crick Hollow, right, uh, and try to and try to get Frodo with their own bare hands, right. And then we come back to the morning after, and then the morning, and prancing pony, and everything's a mess, and somebody bust in, just like the Nazgul did at Crick Hollow, and did some ruckus, right. So, for I mean, I remember, um, I remember for years, therefore, like kind of connecting those dots. They think somebody's going to break in. The Nazgul do break in at Crick Hollow, and in the morning in the Prancing Pony, it's been broken in, right? So um, that... I I know I made that mistake for many years, but it's pretty clear um, that the Nazgul don't attack here in Bree. Um, there is going to be an attack at the end, but it's going to be carried out by Bill Fernie and the Slant-Eyed Southerner, and possibly Harry Goatleaf as well. Um... That's uh, definitely uh, what is going to be happening. Um, And Strider is very clear about this, which leads me to remember that I forgot to answer the question that I was asked before. How, um, Mike, I think it was you who was asking, um, does Strider know about the Black Breath from personal experience, or um, is this something that he's just read about? You know, does he know this from lore? Um, given his little, like, shuddering thing that he does, you know, about how terrible the Black Riders are earlier, I'm going to say from experience. We don't know. We don't get quite enough of Aragorn's backstory to know for sure how he's encountered them and how he's experienced this for himself. But there's every reason to think that he has experienced it for himself. Um, if only... 
If only somebody were to tell the story of the adventures of young Aragorn, such that we could really explore those ideas and, and really develop that backstory, that would be great. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, so how is no, how are people not more excited about the Amazon series? I mean, come on. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So now I, I do think, just Marianne, as you were saying here too, um, I, I, I really do think that he's experienced it himself to some extent. And there's every reason to think that he's at least, um, I, I don't think that, you know, Faramir and Eowyn and Mary are the first people he's treated for it before either, right? Um, there's a reason he goes right for, you know, he urgently uh, uh, goes looking for Athelas right after Weathertop, right? Uh, he knows what to do. I think he's experienced uh, with that before. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. Um, uh, anyhow. So, <laughs> sorry. Let's see if I open a little can of worms with the Amazon thing. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, uh, <laughs> Hug belongs uh, says, uh, nervously stoked for the Amazon show. Yeah, me too. That's a great description of it. Uh, a little nervous, but, um, uh, but I'm excited. Um, and available, let me also add. <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, um, okay, so the, clearly they are sending lackeys to the Prancing Pony, right? Um, the thing to keep in mind here, and this is a thing that I think is, is hardest... Hardest to remember when rereading the text... The image of the Nazgul as they are in The Return of the King is hard to lose, right? Tolkien says, and he says this on many occasions, and there are lots of reasons. This is not just like a J.K. Rowling situation where afterwards he tells us how we should be interpreting things, even when it conflicts with the text or whatever, adding on to the text. Um... Rather, this is Tolkien pointing out stuff from the text, being the really careful reader that he so often was. Um, the Nazgul grow. They, they're not, when we meet them in The Return of the King, they are not the same as they are here. They are far away from Sauron, and that matters. They're far away from, from Mordor. They are lesser. They are struggling. Um, the Nazgul are not world beaters out here, right? The, the, the terror and the horror that they are able to bring, the power that they are able to wield. If you think about the Witch King with his sword uh, riding through the gates of Minas Tirith, that is, he, this is, that is not him here. He is out of his comfort zone. He is far away. He has not yet been, in, he's going to be invested with this like extra mantle of power, by Sauron. Um, Sauron is going to is going to juice the Nazgul later on, right? After they return to him and he sends them back out on their winged steeds and everything else, he's going to give them an upgrade. Okay? Um, but that hasn't happened yet. And they are legitimately struggling out here. Struggling to do their job. And they can be opposed. They can be opposed and they... Like, so, and, this I mean, Aragorn 
In dark and loneliness, they are strongest. That is not their way. In dark and loneliness, they are, they will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. Not until they're desperate. Okay? This isn't just like, it's not a style thing, right? He's not saying, you know, Nazgul, like, you know, they they have to, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, not within their own particular idiom, right, to attack houses where there are lights and many people. He's saying they can't. <laughs> like, they, if they tried, they might fail. It's not how they operate. They don't have the oomph uh, for this. Not here. Not now. Not yet. Um, Sauron is not yet boosted them when he's ready to make his move and they're really far away. Right? Um, so, yeah, they... It's better. It's easier. It is more effective to have Bill Fernie and the Squintide Southerner sneak in through the windows of the Hobbit rooms. If they can do that, they might be able to s- kill or snatch the ring bearer, take the ring, take his... I don't know what their instructions are, exactly. Right? Um... But, um, uh, anyway, um, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, that was a Monty Python reference. Uh, <laughs> sorry, the idiom thing. Yeah, yeah, it was. But, well, spot. <laughs> if it sounds like I might be making a Monty Python reference, I probably am. Uh, I spent way, way too much of my youth listening to Monty Python. Um, but anyway, um, uh, when I was in high school, I could recite the entire Holy Grail script from one end to the next, more or less flawlessly, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, misspent youth. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, so, I, and, and, but I, like I said, I know that this is counterintuitive. I know that this feels uh, sort of strange to remember. Like, even if you can get behind the fact that they're sending Bill Fernie and the Squintide Southerner into the room rather than going themselves, um, it's kind of might be hard to get behind the idea that they're doing this because Bill Fernie and the Squintide Southerner have more power to execute this particular job than they themselves do. But that in fact, um, that in fact seems to be the case. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yes, I can see what you type into chat up there on the Twitch chat. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Um, uh, so if you, the comments that I'm responding to in general, uh, uh, Timo are the ones down in the discord chat. Um, so I encourage you to join the discord chat cause that's the one I'm focusing on mostly. And the Twitch chat is usually for people who are kind of talking amongst themselves during, uh, then that's kind of the idea that we have the two different chats so that in the one you can just kind of unrestrainedly talk amongst yourselves if you want to. In the other, I try to keep focused on just people interacting with me so that I can see people's comments and, and respond to what people are thinking here. But anyway, just to explain that's how it works. Um, anyway. Okay. So, um, that's right. No, no, nobody ever does crosstalk on Discord, John. Fortunately, so that's that. That makes it nice. Okay. Um, so Strider is anticipating that they are in real danger. Uh, not from the Nazgul yet. There'll be plenty of danger from the Nazgul later, but 
right now they're in more danger of thugs because there's no way that those rooms can be made secure against um, those who are under the power of the Nazgul. The primary power of the Nazgul is fear, right? They can control people like the the, the people that that look at the the words that Strider uses, right? The the metaphors that he uses. Um, their power is in terror, and already some in Bree are in their clutch, right? Like, through the fear that they can inspire, they can just grab onto people and squeeze them and not let them go, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, that's that. So, by th- through their ability to sort of to dominate the spirits of others and to manipulate others through fear, um, and also bribery, yes, Zephan and Micah reminding us, of course, of their of their uh, their offers of gold uh, for news and things like that, which certainly is what inspired Bill Fernie to sell everybody out, right? Um, and uh, Boomful, I can't imagine that like Harry Goatleaf knows what the Nazgul are. Can't imagine he has any idea, right? Um, notice, remember, even uh, Butterbur makes the understandable assumption that they're just guys, right? Weird guys, right? He calls them men, right? Um, he calls them black men because, like, all he can see are black cloaks, right? And everything, like, he can only see their clothing and every every stitch of which is black, right? So he, he calls them, um, you know, these black men. But he can't see them themselves, but he assumes that they're people, Um I, you know that they're that they're that they're human. I have to imagine that um, uh, that Harry Goatleaf assumes that they're people, but people of whom he's creepy people of whom he is terrified. That sense of the uncanny uh, is is clear to everybody, right? Sam or Gaffer Gamgee has it. Uh, uh, Farmer uh, Farmer Maggot has it very distinctly, right? Harry Goatleaf is white and shaking uh, when they leave him behind. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't th- Matt, I think fortunately one of the one of the powers of the Nazgul seems not to be a ruthless efficiency, actually, because if it were, <clears throat> things might have gone much worse. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, we're making progress. We're we're almost there. While Strider was gone, Frodo gave Mary a rapid account of all that had happened since supper. Mary was still reading and pondering Gandalf's letter when Strider and Nob returned. "'Well, masters,' said Nob, "'I've ruffled up the clothes and put in a bolster down the middle of each bed, "'and I made a nice imitation of your head with a brown woolen mat, Mr. Beck. "'Underhill, sir,' he added with a grin. Pippin laughed. "'Very lifelike,' he said. "'But what will happen when they have penetrated the disguise?' "'We shall see,' said Strider. "'Let us hope to hold the fort till morning.' Good night to you, said Nob, and went off to take his part in the watch on the doors. Okay, so let's um let's construct what the plan is here. The plan, the disguise in like the bolsters and things, right? The fake hobbits in beds. This must have been Aragorn's idea, right? Strider went with Nob to fetch their luggage from the the room. So Nob had already taken their luggage, right? They're shown into this parlor, remember, where they had dinner first, um, and their luggage was taken to the rooms where they would be sleeping for the night. Um, 
Strider goes with Nob to fetch their luggage back, and I don't think that he just went in order to help Nob carry it, though, you know, he's a nice guy and might have done so anyway, but um, but I don't think that was the purpose. This, uh, uh, this disguise, um, this uh, uh, whatever it is that he's attempting to do, this seems to be Aragorn's strategy. So, What's the point? What's the what's Aragorn's point? Do you think? Um, why why does he do this? Why does he? Uh, why does he put a bolster down for the bolster and the mat and everything else there? Well, if we just kind of go at this step by step, there's no point in doing that unless you want to convince somebody looking in that there are people sleeping there, right? I mean, that is what he's done is put fake sleeping people in the beds. Um, so obviously he wants to, um, he wants to convince people um, uh, that somebody, right, that the hobbits are actually sleeping there in the rooms. Um, obviously it's not, the staff of the pony because Nob goes along with him, right? And Nob obviously going to keep that secret from Butterbur. So it's got to be the potential people breaking in, right? Um, so uh, I got to think he's trying to deceive people who are, who are uh, looking in the windows, right? Remember the windows are at ground level. So if somebody looks in from outside into a, you know, a darkened room, they're going to be able to see, if they can see anything, um, they're likely to be able to, they'll think that there are hobbits sleeping in the beds. Um, Why? Why does he want them to think that the hobbits are sleeping in the beds? This is uh, my theory. Well, here's my theory. My theory is that Strider's trying to, like, take their temperature here. He's trying to figure out what they're facing exactly. Um, He wants to know what they're going to do, what they're going to try, right? Um, I think this is Strider saying... What would they have done had the hobbits been in the room? See, Emma Thorne, I was thinking diversion too for a minute, but I don't think it can be a diversion because like diversion from what? A a diversion is when you're trying to get them to think one thing so you can do something else, right? Um, His plan to keep them safe in that private parlor is in, I mean, his plan to keep them safe is to be there to defend them, you know, with his broken sword. Uh, so um, he doesn't need, like, a distraction in order to do that. I think he's trying to figure out... He's trying to get them to show their hand. What is their plan? What were they trying to do? Um, he wants to make that clear. Um, so, uh, interesting. <laughs> Matt Violinus says, This is part 24 of his plan to show Frodo at all that this is a serious business. Uh, these people are trying to kill you, kill you dead, so pay attention. Um, yeah, I wonder. 
I wonder if that might be, in fact, part of the part of the thing. To, so he wants to know for sure. Uh, am I right? Right. You know, am I right that they're going to send their thugs? Like I, his assessment is that there are people in Bree, Bill Fernie, certainly, probably the squint-eyed Southerner, maybe Harry Goatleaf, who are so firmly in the grip of the uh, Black Riders that they will uh, attack and potentially even try to murder people at the Prancing Pony. That's got to be fairly rare, right? I mean, somebody who would sneak in at night and stab guests in their beds in the Prancing Pony, that can't have happened too many times, right, Uh, in a town like Bree. So... I mean, you know, Bree's been around for a long time, so presum- presumably it's not totally unheard of. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that can't be a common occurrence. Um, so even you think about the sensation that it creates, Butterbur is shocked the next morning, right, when he finds out what has happened. Um, so I think that he is trying to, to sort of assess, okay, what are we really up against here? Am I right in my assessment of where things are in the town and where things are with, uh, um, with, with a Nazgul here. I agree. Tom Strider wouldn't need a weapon to deal with Fernie Goatleaf and the squint-eyed Southerner. I think, uh, he would be, even if they came armed, he'd probably be fine, uh, uh, without, whoops, sorry. I just messed up things there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, so I do think that, and uh, and going back to Mad Violinist, the point that you were making, he does, um, the first thing he does is sort of show the hobbits what happened, right? Um, trying to send a message to them. It might possibly, uh, it might possibly be in part to show them that as well. Um, Obviously, his primary plan, like the the important element of his plan, is just to not... He knows they're going to be too vulnerable, because the Hobbit bedrooms are a terrible place to try to defend, because there are too many ways in, right? Um, And they seem to have more than one room anyway. So, um, anyway, so yeah, there's no way he could defend them there. So he's keeping them all in one place in this inner room where he can defend them. There don't seem to be windows in this inner parlor where they are. So he just can just parks himself in front of the door and can know that they're going to be safe all night long because he can defend them. Um, that's plan A, right? He doesn't seem to accomplish anything else. Um, he doesn't seem to accomplish anything, uh, that, that is, you know, by the whole. So like, that's why, again, why I can't think that it's a diversion. Cause again, from what he doesn't take advantage of it to do anything, right? Other than just to keep them safe all night and say, we're getting out of here in the morning. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I definitely think that it's just about keeping them away from there. So why does he do the disguise? Again, the, on, the, the, the only people for whose benefit those, you know, bolsters and, and rugs could have, could be are for the, um, uh, for the, the thugs, who are sneaking in from outside the windows. Um, and the only point of creating dummies uh, there in the beds is to draw them in and try to get them to commit themselves, essentially, right? Um, if the rooms are all empty and nothing happens, right? So they sneak, they don't find them and they just go away. Strider doesn't know anything more, right? He's not learned anything. It's like nothing has been gained in the night. Um, here, now he has information. And they've exposed themselves. And not to mention, remember what we were talking about with Nob coming down the road with a lamp and why they scattered in front of him? 
you got to think that things might get actually a little bit hot for Bill Fernie in Bree, right? I mean, there's going to be some kind of investigation as to who broke into the pony and slashed everything up, right? They've got nothing to show. They were willing to do it uh, because they thought it was going to be worth it, right? Now they're left with nothing. Maybe they're going to get... Uh, maybe they're going to get in hot water with the Nazgul. Maybe Strider is thinking that, right? That if they uh, if they come back, if they fail in the task that the Nazgul send them to do, you know, maybe uh, uh, that would uh, put them in an uncomfortable position. In any case, it's likely to put them in an uncomfortable position with Butterbur and with the uh, <clears throat> and with the other uh, the other worthies of Breetown, right? Because there's likely to be an investigation about who broke into the pony and committed acts of vandalism. So um, <clears throat> at the end of the day, I mean, Strider's, their position has been bettered, in fact, by the attack on the, the pony. So it does, I think, in the end, seem to be um, exactly Mad Violinist. Bill Fernie does already have an ill name uh, in the community. You got to think if Bill Fernie comes to trial for this, you know, he he might there there there's going to be a, a hostile jury. <laughs> You'd have to think uh, he's going to have a hard time convincing folks that there was no way that he could have had anything to do with it. Um, absolutely. So um, uh, anyway, so so yeah, I I definitely think that he he is he ends up gaining stuff uh, from perpetrating this deception, um, and in the end, I think perhaps makes things. Uh, uh, you know, makes things a bunch easier for themselves. Um, Blue Wizard says, but in that case, in for a penny, in for a pound, uh, or rather, Blue Wizard, to use uh, one of my favorite traditional sayings, you might as well get hanged for a sheep as a lamb, right? Um, why not search the hole in at that point? Um, well, because remember, Butterbur is patrolling, right? Um, Butterbur and Nob and Bob, who may or may not be a hobbit, um, they're patrolling. Now, it's not like they're terrifying in themselves, um, but they can raise the alarm again. So, like, if they don't have the leisure to search the hole in without for sure getting caught uh, and uh, uh, and exposed and possibly captured. And uh, there are... Uh, there are a dozen ways in which that could go super, super bad for them. I think that they are uh, um, likely to just, it seems, the not even the better part of valor, because there's no reason to think that they're particularly valorous even, right? Um, I, I That they would run away after, uh, you know, they did enough to expose themselves and um, and you're right, Nick, that they do know that Strider is a guest. Maybe they are, uh, will be a little bit concerned. Frodo was last seen in the company of Strider, right? When they, when, uh, Bill Fernie was sneering at Frodo as he was walking out, he was sitting next to Strider, right? Um, and although Fernie speaks scornfully to Strider, I doubt he actually, I, 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 I would guess he's actually kind of afraid of him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Lincoln, you're right. It is really cool how the, uh, the knife in the dark chapter, um, both starts and ends with a knife in the dark, right? First, the, the, the knives of 
uh, Bill Fernie et al. Uh, in Brie, and then uh, the knife, uh, the the knife on on Weathertop. Absolutely. Um, cool. All right. Um, this is the end of chapter ten. Their bags and gear they piled on the parlor floor. They pushed a low chair against the door and shut the window. Okay, sorry, there is a window. Um, but it has a shutter, apparently, so that's good. Uh, peering out, Frodo saw that the night was still clear. The sickle was swinging bright above the shoulders of Bree Hill. He then closed and barred the heavy inside shutters and drew the curtains together. Strider built up the fire and blew out all the candles. The hobbits lay down on their blankets with their feet towards the hearth, but Strider settled himself in the chair against the door. They talked for a little, for Mary still had several questions to ask. "'Jumped over the moon!' chuckled Mary as he rolled himself in his blanket. "'Very ridiculous of you, Frodo. But I wish I had been there to see. The worthies of Bree will be discussing it a hundred years hence.' "'I hope so,' said Strider. Then they all fell silent, and one by one the hobbits dropped off to sleep." Thanks for that final note there, Strider. Um, so, um, I love just one small touch here, uh, and we could <clears throat> continue to uh, sort of talk about the the sort of the the bigger picture ramifications of the scene. But I love Mary's chuckling. Right, <clears throat> very ridiculous of you, Frodo. Right, that's. I mean, at the, at the least, you could say that that's a charitable response, right? Um, uh, you know, it's much more than ridiculous, like completely insane of you, Frodo. Uh, 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 Frodo, you're a complete moron. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, you know, that's the, uh, but the fact that, that he, Mary, who was just whammied by the Black Riders, you know, an hour ago, and, uh, you know, all of them who are in fear of the inn being assaulted in the night and uh, knowing that they have, you know, many miles of black wilderness between them and safety with the Nazgul uh, right there already on top of them and dogging their steps the whole way. And Mary can still laugh about the the incident which exposed the presence of the ring bearer to the Nazgul, right? Uh, that's just, that's just, that's hobbits, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, Tillian, part of that hobbit ability to move past it, right? And I, it's, this is obviously a strength, right? This is obviously one of those things that, uh, um, you know, when Strider looks at Mary with a with a sort of a new respect, right when he hears about his pursuing the uh, the the Nazgul, um, I you know it's, this is uh, this is a strength. This is the strength of the Hobbits. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, Oakwig, that's a nice touch. Uh, uh, Oakwig points out that, of course, it's the dude who was called Estelle throughout Hope throughout his childhood who ends up saying, I hope so, at the end. Now, I mean, of course, I've always taken I hope so. I mean, I hope so, of course, is literally a positive thing to say, right? Uh, but, of course, in the in the context, what he's saying is a bit of a downer, right? Uh I hope so. You know, the worthies of Brie will be discussing it a hundred years hence, and him saying, I hope so, 
uh, means I hope the worthies of Bree are around to discuss it in a hundred. If a hundred years from now the worthies of Bree are still telling this story, then that means everyone did not die in the like Mordor apocalypse that is going to come if we fail, right? If Sauron gets the ring of power uh, and asserts the dominance of the shadow over all of Middle-earth, the worthies of Bree are not going to be telling this story in a hundred years, right? So if everything goes well, people will still be laughing about this. Um, exactly, Boomfly. I hope Bree will still be here in a hundred years. Um, so uh, it's... Um, I, 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 I've never really seen that statement as like one of encouragement, but rather one of he's here. This is him. I think trying to, Oh, temper. I don't think it's exactly right. Um, but something like it, right. To, um, caution perhaps not counterbalance exactly, but I think he's here speaking against, Hobbit lightness, right? That kind of Hobbit buoyancy, uh, which enables Mary to laugh at this thing already. You know, at the despite everything that they've experienced in the last twenty four hours, here's Mary still chuckling about what the disaster that happened with Frodo earlier tonight, um, and imagining everyone sitting around and and laughing about this this funny story a hundred years from now over pints of beer in the you know house of Butterbur's great grandson, right? Um, this that's the scene that Mary's imagining, into which Aragorn interjects this. I hope so, right? In other words, reminding them, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? Uh, let's uh, let's not forget that there's a decent chance that, you know, uh, everything's going to end horribly and Sauron is going to win, right? Um, so yes, Belongsman, he does uh, uh, bring uh, bring things back to the reality of the situation. He does seem to want to be reminding them. Uh, of that. Um, so, yeah. Now, Bruinier, that is a wonderful, wonderful observation. Uh, of course, we have a spoiler, right? We know it. it is. We know that the Worthies of Bree are going to be discussing Frodo's Cow Jumped Over the Moon song a hundred years hence, right? Because we're still reciting that distant descendant of the of the man in the moon song right the fact that the 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 hey diddle diddle the 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 uh the hey diddle the cat and the fiddle verse has survived as a modern nursery rhyme proves that the worthies of brie did in fact continue to discuss it a hundred years later right um and that's awesome Right, that is a really fun kind of metatextual moment at the end of this. Um, that we as readers, not the hobbits themselves, not even, you know, of course, there's sort of a different sense in which the people, uh, like if you imagine, like the audience of the original Red Book, right, who are hearing this might have a, but there's this additional layer, right, in which we, the modern readers, um, of this text, have a a different perspective on this, right? Because, in fact, of everything that happened in this chapter, of the things which seem like the really momentous events, the meeting of Aragorn and Frodo, the revelation of the presence of the Ring of Power to the Nazgul in this moment, there's only one thing from this chapter that's still going to be remembered by everybody centuries later, and that's going to be the Man in the Moon poem. 
right? Uh, because that's going to survive as a nursery rhyme long after all the rest of the events have been forgotten. Um, and that's really cool, right? That's really fun. Um, okay. But there's another really fun thing here. Um, it's not Strider who gives words ultimately of encouragement. Again, there is hope in what he says. He, he does say that he hopes that they will, right? Which I don't want to take as a purely negative statement, because it's not. It's a positive statement, but it is a positive statement that reminds them of the presence of the, of the, of the negative, of the potential of the negative, right? He does not know that that will happen. Mary speaks it confidently as if it's a given that they're going to be talking about it in a hundred years' time, right? And Strider points out that, no, it's, it's, that's a doubtful proposition. He hopes that it will happen, but it's doubtful. But there is one purely hopeful uh, note, purely hopeful reminder in this scene. Um, one indication that things are going to turn out well. Uh, you know what it is? Anybody know what is the the purely hopeful sign? Yes, Singing Fox has it. The constellation. The sickle was swinging bright above the shoulders of Bree Hill. The sickle is the Big Dipper. That's what they call the sickle uh, uh, in Middle-earth. And the sickle is the sickle of the Valar, the constellation that was made by Varda Elbereth uh, in defiance of the power of Melkor. It was the sign of the judgment of Melkor, and it was put up in the north in order to sit above Utumna, where he ruled, and be a warning to him of the doom and judgment of the Valar that was hanging above him and the certainty of his defeat. Um, the Valakirka, yes, Tilian. Um, that's the sickle in question. This is one of the... I, I've always thought this is one of the coolest moments. There are a bunch of moments where if you know the Silmarillion really well... Um, you can kind of there. You, you can you see things and get things that aren't obvious uh, in the Lord of the Rings, or you get um, um, uh, you get uh, um, uh, yeah. You just kind of either get references or understand the significance of things when you read the Lord of the Rings. There, there's lots of payback of uh, knowing the Silmarillion well uh, when you read the Lord of the Rings. This is one of my very, very favorites. This is, I think, one of the most, uh, one of the most subtle ones. The sign of the sickle in the north is the, is the sign of the vigilance of the Valar. That the Valar are, uh, watching the evil and will judge it and that the enemy will not win. Uh, you will, of course, remember the star that Sam sees in Mordor. Uh, and realizes that there is uh, high beauty that the shadow cannot touch, right? That the shadow is only a small and passing thing in the end. The shadow of Sauron, of course. Sauron himself is only a servant of the great enemy, and that enemy has been judged, and his downfall was surely predicted long before it happened, right? Um, the Valar have not forgotten. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way. Um, when people ask me the question, so are the Valar still involved in Middle-earth? 
right? Do we have any reason to think that, you know, Manway and Varda and the rest of them are still, like, doing stuff? Are they just forgotten about Middle-earth? Uh, no, I don't believe they have forgotten about Middle-earth. And this is one of my favorite passages uh, to think about that. Um, that the sickle is... That here they are in danger, right? Here they are, it looks like, surrounded by darkness. They have this kind of fleeting security, uh, very imperfect security in the Prancing Pony, um, from the Nazgul, you know, from 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 the shadow of the enemy, the greatest servants of the enemy who are lingering around outside. Um, even there, they're not perfectly safe uh, from the thugs whom they, the Nazgul, are able to control. Th- th- things look really dark for Frodo right now, right? For the ring, for the whole world, ultimately. But as they are uh, shutting the window... Right, Frodo peering out sees the reminder. Right, sees the reminder, the promise of the Valar that evil will fail. Right, uh, that the evil one will fall, uh, and that good will prevail. Uh, and that's that's the whole point of the sickle. And this night, <clears throat> this night of all nights, as darkness is closing in, the sickle is hovering above Bree Hill. Uh, so, and of course, like it does every night, right? But this night, it has special significance. Um, so, I, I just, I, I, and it's, it's so subtle that you, uh, you know, it's so easy to, I, I can't even think of how many times I read this book before I thought about the sickle. Um, must have been sometime when I read the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings back to back that I was like, oh yeah, the sickle. That's really cool. Um, but uh, but it's it's pretty awesome. There's the sickle outside the window and there's Strider sitting in that chair uh, that's holding the door closed, right? Putting his body uh, between them and the danger uh, that they would be in. They're fine, right? Things are going to be fine. Looks pretty bad, but things are going to be fine. Um, yes, Ogwig, the change in the wind in book five is the other. Uh, that's kind of the the biggest thing that's kind of easiest to point to there. Um, uh, yeah, certainly one of the first places I go. Um, I didn't say this is the strongest argument. I said this is my favorite. Right? This is definitely my favorite argument. Um, uh, I agree. The change in the wind is, I think, the biggest one, but... All right. And with that, we're done with chapter 10. No problem. Next week, we will move back to Buckland and look at the awesome opening of chapter 11. It's going to be great. Um, So next week, we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 11. That is just as well. Uh, and we will, I, my goal is certainly, uh, to get through the Buckland incident at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, and maybe if we get there, uh, if we're feeling particularly frisky, we'll get to, uh, the beginning of the next morning there in the Prancing Pony. Okay. No, John, we're actually averaging about eight weeks per chapter now, uh, more, more or less. I mean, the chapters vary in length, so, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna vary. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, we're up to like seven, eight or so, uh, weeks or classes, I should say, uh, per, uh, per chapter. But, um, 
we are about to start the penultimate chapter of book one, right? We are at serious risk of finishing book one in the year 2018. I think it might happen. I think within two years, we might be done with book one, right? In which case we'd be on pace to finish the book within 12 years. I mean, who thought we'd be uh, moving that fast? Are we doing the appendices, says William? Well, it depends. It depends. I mean, by the time we finish, I'm going to be near retirement age, I think. So we'll have to, we'll have to see how many classes I have left in me at that point. Uh, but um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, John, I've, over the course of the whole book, right, we've done 61 sessions and we've finished 10 chapters. So, yeah, that is, you know, 6.1 uh, classes per chapter. But that average is thrown way off by the fact that we only did, what, two or three chapters on chapter one. So the whole, that's, it's not, I'm, I'm really thinking of really just the last, like, looking at the last three or four chapters. But whatever. Um, yeah, the Council of Elrond, Matthew, that's going to be the real the real trick there. We'll see. We'll see how long that, that one takes us. Um, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's all good. It's all good. All right. So, uh, with that, we're going to, we're going to end our book discussion for tonight. Um, I'm going to, it's a, it's a field trip time. So for those of you who want to join us on our field trip, as we continue our exploration of Angmar, which is again, really interesting look at, you know, one of the main things my, as that has been my focus through the field trips of late has been looking at the, uh, the kind of, uh, uh, interpretation and adaptation, not just of the Lord of the Rings story, but of middle earth history, especially of second and third age history uh, that uh, you know has gone into sort of the the planning and the not just the the storyline but even the geography uh, and the depiction of uh, towns and cultures and things like that uh, the world building that they do in the Lord of the Rings online game some really fascinating reading of uh, Tolkien's larger uh, world and his broader texts there uh, so really interested to get back to Angmar uh, and uh, uh, take a uh, take another step in that. So we're on Landreval tonight for those of you who want to join us. Um, and I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter as I always do. So thanks everybody for joining us there. And I will, um, uh, shift. Okay. There we go. Okay. Good evening. Hello, Valerie. Good to hear you again. Yep, I'm on as Valori tonight. Okay. Excellent. So, 12 years, like, both our kids be out of college, yeah. all of our kids be out of college. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, my, my younger son, Matthias, will be graduating from college at the rate at which we're looking to finish up. So, yeah. Of course, then we'll be able to teleport to the lecture hall, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So, um, so tonight we are going, uh, beyond the boundaries. Uh, so I hope everybody is ready for this. Yeah. The book six, uh, to get the, to get the charm that will keep the warders from frying you when you pass them. I guess yes. we're going to find out how, who, who did the That's quest, right. There will be no hiding. So, uh, if you suddenly <laughs> drop dead in the middle of Angmar, you'll know why. Um, we're done with you. <laughs> we're done with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I did not quite forget 
uh, to have Narnian do that. So he is all set. So look, here I have awesome. book six, chapter seven here, queued up in my in my uh, quest log here. Pretty nice. You know, I uh, wait. That's not the one. That's the one. Um, I but here. Let's, so let's head out. Um, I same thing. I guess we just go to Algier again and Algier. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, then we'll ride. It's a lot easier during pollen season. Yeah, true. Um, so, um, yeah. Okay. So anyway, what was I going to say? Um, Highway to the danger zone. Yes. Yeah. Soon, soon, we will get to a point where we can actually quick travel to Gathforthnir. Uh, oh. And, and travel out from there. I'm tempted just to skip straight to Gathforth near <laughs> so that we can travel from there in future. Um, you got to get like rep though, right? Well, that's the problem. I think we might. Yeah. Yeah. I you and me that... have to like pop on sometime, just kill a whole bunch of things, do a whole bunch of quests so we can get in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There may never be a fast way. Um, but okay, so we're just going to go to Esteldeen and then travel from there as we've been. Okay, so the places we've been exploring to this point have mm-hmm. been in the uh, the the western side of Angmar. Um, and primarily what we've been looking at are Hillman settlements, and it would seem that the hillmen were natives there, right? Like this mm-hmm. was the, 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 the native lands of the hillmen then All overtaken, yeah. right? Then overtaken by the Angmarim. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, just going to painfully slow travel. <laughs> yep. Oh yes. Requires acquaintance standing with the council of the North. Yep. Those are hard too. Yeah. Dang it. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, get a whole bunch of gold. Go to the auction hall. Get all the little blue bobs and just click on the repra uh, items. Right. I think that might be the might be the move. Um, I mean, Only on the server. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I couldn't exactly do that on every server. Um, yeah. Right. So, okay, as I said, so we're over here. So over here seems to be most of the places that we were looking at. There were there was evidence of old Angmarim architecture, right, from back in the uh, back in the the sort of the high days, the glory days the of Angmar. Age, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's not exactly golden, right? What would it be like the the I don't even know iron. What, the Iron, iron age, age, but that has a different yeah. connotation, right? So I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it's iron crown. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So whatever that metal is, unobtainium. <laughs> yes. Yes. The obsidian age or whatever of uh, of Angmar. Um, but there seems to be, you know, there seem to be some places which are just the traditional. Like I'm thinking of uh, uh, Phyla Crow, for instance, that traditional gathering mm-hmm. spot, and uh, and you know that that sort of little central area that obviously has significance. Some of the other places that we didn't see in our field trips, but which you can see um, 
if you complete the the all of the the local quests down there mm-hmm. in Ramduath, um, you know the like sacred piles of stones and things like that, right? Uh, you know, all yeah, those, all those places. and totems and stuff. Exactly. There's plenty of evidence that this area is the ancestral home of these hillmen, right? Mm-hmm. So that when the Witch King comes up and establishes Angmar originally, the first thing that he does is enslave these hillmen, right, and corrupts them. And after the fall of Angmar, they hang on, and we see, you know, the different tribes, some of whom still retain, you know, their sort of old ancestral connections to Angmar, and others of which have repudiated them, um, perhaps resisted them all along. I tend to kind of think that the the people, and I'm, I'm forgetting what they were called already. The, uh, the Trave Galorg, is that? Yeah, Trave Galorg. Yeah, the Trave Galorg down in Alkair are people who have like fallen away from Angmar. They've turned back, uh, from serving Angmar. It's really hard for you to imagine that they resisted here the whole time. Right. I, I, I feel like they learned their lesson. Like, well, we did that last time and it didn't work out for us and we were pretty miserable. So why would we do it again? Right. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, you know, it's interesting to kind of see the, the, those different, I mean, I think of, you know, like when we were up at, um, uh, uh, what's it called up here, this town that we were exploring with the different layers of architecture and we were looking at the, the ways in which, um, you could see, you know, the old, the, yeah, yeah, um, where you could see the old, you know, the, the different layers of, you know, the 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 old Angmarim stronghold, the 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 newer uh, buildings where, where the hillmen had moved in and occupied it after Angmar fell, and they they took it over and made it their own place, and then Angmar has now reimposed its will upon them. And oh, that uh, was that was Falroid or something. Yes, like up that. there in Falsak Falroid, yeah. yeah. Um, so. Anyway, so it, it's it's really interesting to see the complexities of that. But all of that is over here. So all of this stuff mm-hmm. um, that we've been looking at, this is like the, the primary Hillman region. We'll see some other stuff like it elsewhere, like when we get up to Himbar and we get to see, you know, these are like the suburbs of Karndum itself. And even <laughs> Karndum itself has some really kind of interesting features. Um but tonight, where where I want to go is into this new region. I want to go down into Malanhad and over towards um, uh, what's it called, Gabul Shathur, um, uh, down in that direction is my goal for the evening. Um, okay. To see a settlement that is uh, apart from, we'll get to see a bunch of different terrain, of course, uh, and uh, uh, see some. Uh, uh, some other areas uh, and other kinds of settlements outside of the Hillman's range here. Um, William is asking, will we be doing the Urugarth and Karndum instances? Uh, Well, my answer is if that's the only way I can get into those places, yes, definitely. (laughs) Because I want to... I think you need to get Karndum without there, but you need the key. You you need the key. key You need to run around willy-nilly. Yeah, there are quest issues that have to be down there so so that's in the maybe pile yeah exactly we'll see what we what we can arrange um especially with the way that i'm jumping around on different servers i'm not going to be able to do um 
you know, things that require intensive prereq questing on every server. Yeah, yeah, have mercy on our alts. Yeah, it's going to get tricky. Um, but, um, okay, so actually I want to head over this way. Uh, okay. Yeah. I want to kind of skirt the hills here. And the baddies, too, for the sake of the lowlies. Uh, yeah, there are a bunch of wolves yeah, and hard up here. Up here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, these... yeah, this place is just peppered with them. How many uh, How many low-level low folks do we have with us here tonight? Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm not seeing any enemies kiting, so probably oh, good. not too many. That's a good sign. All right. You get that big long trail. <laughs> That's when you're in trouble. Yes. I do like generally that you can outdistance them eventually <laughs> if you mm-hmm. if you can get Just past keep their swimming. Range. Yeah. Okay. Almost there now. Sorry, I was trying to take up the vanguard. Let's see. I was, uh, uh, Narnian was riding his war steed for the first time earlier today. <laughs> As I was, uh, <laughs> doing the prereq quests, I was, uh, getting on my war steed and cruising out here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's pause here at the brink and uh, the the war steeds. Here. I always feel like you need to have a truck driving license in order to get those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to make sure you're licensed for heavy machinery. Okay, um, and a vehicle with wide turns. Yes, definitely. All right. Yeah, it looks like we're not kiting anybody, so that's good. All right, so. This new area, so right there, right, just to the south of us, um, those are the settlements that we explored last time. Yep. Ending with, and we can see it from here. Look at the great tree, right? The great tree in the courtyard that we were looking at before. You can see from here. Oh, yeah, crazy. It's just huge, that tree. It was a ridiculously huge tree. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so... um, uh, so you said this looked like it was an ocean floor. Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Because on the one hand, we can see... You look at this all around. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I, 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 it looks like it could be. Like, if you look at the north edges, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, it definitely looks like mineral deposits, like a salt deposit. Right, going up the side of the mountain a little bit, right? As if this mm-hmm. were... but. It would have, if it were a sea, it would be quite shallow. Like it's not very deep. Um, you'd expect it to go down. It's very flat. Um, maybe a lake, like a like a salt lake, maybe. Yeah, maybe a salt lake because these things, uh, not the worms, uh, but these these look like hot springs and fumaroles and things. Like this one's actually steaming over here, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So this would have been not only a salt lake, but a like a hot lake, 
if yeah. it had been a lake. Um, which, which is would be useful in the north, except not here. <laughs> yeah, 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 and you you get the feeling the water in here would like sting your legs or something like that. Yeah, and it's funny. The thing that I I, I always find so interesting the water looks really kind of appealing. Like it's clear and bright blue, suspiciously blue when the sky is like as gray as the sky is, right? Like an overchlorinated swimming pool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I always, I always have this experience when I'm riding through here. I'm like, oh, these, these, these lakes look really beautiful, and it's like they look too beautiful. This is suspiciously colored, actually. Because you're right. About it looks. The turtle that's trying to toss me 500 feet. Yeah. It used to. It used to. Um, I mean, it, it, it does look like it's just unhealthy. Uh, Omali says it used to give you damage to enter the lake. I didn't, uh, I didn't I know that. that. I believe that. I seem to recall that, but then it's one of those things I can't tell. It's like, did I imagine that or did they change it? I don't remember. Right. The other thing that I'm interested in are these dead trees. Yeah. Because if these are, if these trees, which appear long dead, like the one in the courtyard there, are, um, they look old, and so mm-hmm. therefore, and they can't have been. I mean, I guess if they were in a lake, but maybe, maybe the lake's chemistry changed. Like maybe that's have, half of the problem. This would have been. It's an sitting island. in another crater like that one up in the courtyard. Except this one is recessed rather than or, and huge. Look, and yeah, it's yeah, steaming abscessed. around the roots of it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe this. Yeah, maybe this was something where the, the salinity changed and suddenly everything just sort of died and went barren. Yeah. Yeah. This might be like half petrified tree or something like that. Yeah. Certainly not alive right now. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> so. It'd be pickled. <laughs> it'd be pickled, yeah. So my question is, what are we supposed to understand about this? That is, again, thinking about, you know, as we've talked about on and off on different occasions, um, as I've been thinking about, you know, in my Grifflet stream, as I've been exploring Nankurinir recently, is -hmm. this a desolation in the, like, Tolkienian, the desolation of evil sense, like the desolation of Smaug? That is, when when I look at this, one of the, the primary questions I keep asking myself is, was this once a, you know, nice place which got ruined by the things that the Witch King did up here? Or was this always a rather nasty place that, you know, the Witch King came and lived in because he was like, oh, it's it's nasty here. You know, this is uh, my kind of place. Like, did he make it nasty, or did he like it because it was nasty? Like, his... Did evil change the land, or did the land attract evil? Exactly, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, it, it is a fair question. The trees here do suggest that at one point it was a, yes. a place that, you know, welcomed life. And yeah. I, I don't know, it, the, the makeup here really does suggest this was something that's been warped and thwarted in its purpose. Yeah, the, I agree. The trees are the thing that I had forgotten about. The trees, actually. I mean, I, I, I retained my memory of the startlingly blue water and the, you know, the sort of disturbing kind of, you know, fungus-like 
uh, fumaroles sticking up and, and uh, the turtles, which used to kick my butt on a regular basis. Uh, but, um, but other than that, and this one, I, I always want there to be something up here. Yeah, there's a couple of places like that where I'm just kind of like, oh, is this lead somewhere? Or is it a path? Oh, it's nothing. Yeah, it's a path to... Like, what I think should really be here should be some, like, hideous trap. Like, this whole thing should be like a Venus flytrap, you know? So, like, when you do ride up the path and stand here, it's like... Chewy, get us out of here! <laughs> exactly. Just like that. Um... But uh, anyway, yeah, so as I was saying, I, I, I remembered all those things, but I forgot the trees. I forgot the, the, those dead trees, mm-hmm. um, which are definitely interesting. Um, and they do, th- that is, of everything, they're the thing that do suggest to me most clearly that this was once growing and is now deadened. Blasted brine marsh. Yeah, yeah. Um, this it, it, it really does look salty. I mean, I almost I can almost taste it just sort of yes. riding through here. Just yes, like it, it does. And of course, things like um, you know volcanic activity and stuff like that, you know, is correlated. I mean, you know, Mount Doom itself is a place mm-hmm. that. Sauron settled down in and made use of, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Mordor itself has presumably been altered and twisted. We know it has been altered and twisted to his design. You know, was it ever a thriving, green, lush, and growing place at some point in the, in the ancient past? We don't know that for certain, but certainly... Only Marta knows. <laughs> right. It wasn't as bad as as it has since become. Certainly the effect of evil upon the land is a well-established thing uh, in Tolkien's world. Um, but, uh, but then, of course, here, this line of statues which precipitate all the pregame questing. Um, I love the skeletons leading up to it. It reminds me of never-ending story where you're getting close to the Sphinx. <laughs> right, right. Um yeah, so uh, this, of course, the fact that this line of the statues, you know, with the statues which kill everyone with despair, um, approaching it, um, certainly then it's really hard to avoid the conclusion, mm-hmm. right, that this is a land that's been corrupted. Um, you know, that this is here the center of the evil. Um. I, uh, yeah, and uh, Emma Thorne, I oh, totally keep moving. You will pass out if you stay here. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> keep moving. Um, Emma Thorne, I totally died here first because, like, I always like exploring. So yeah, I got totally mm-hmm. carried away with exploring and exploring. Like, I was also dodging mobs because I was on level. So you know, I was. <laughs> Um, I was like weaving my way around to try to avoid as many of the red dots as possible. I was playing Wigan. I was playing my guardians. I wasn't like a scared of them. I could take them, uh, uh, except it turned out several of the turtles at once. But, um, but, but yeah, I did just get here and I'm like, Ooh, creepy statues. And of course, like being me, I'm like, Hey, let's go look at those really closely. So I ran right up to the statues and died. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I guess I should have done the quests first. Um, uh, yeah, my, mine was, uh, you know, you reach that level 50 hunter master task thing where you have to get various uh, items. And it's like, oh, you have to get all these items here. Well, I'll just pop on over. Oh, I'm dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I don't know. I mean, again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of get a sense of what happened here and what, so here's the other alternative. Maybe this wasn't a sea, right? Or a lake that is dried up. Maybe this is just a place which was once a sort of lush, fertile valley, but has been, you know, has been twisted and, you know, maybe the, Maybe even the bubbling up of the the you know the steams and the fumaroles from from below the earth is one of the effects that you know evil has had on the land here, um, and so that's where we get the lakes, which are now different, right, than they were. The trees still survive. Presumably, there were other things that have long since rotten and or calcified or whatever. Um, I do think that yeah, I mean. I, Jake, I, 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 I haven't been to Yellowstone Park, but I know about Yellowstone Park um, <laughs> and that it does look kind of like this. I get that, that it doesn't just have to be blasted by evil in order to look this. Though, Jake, I would ask you uh, in return, do you know for sure that Yellowstone Park, Park <clears throat> is not the product of the land being blasted by evil? Maybe it was. Bears. <laughs> exactly. It's the bears. Exactly. Um, but, but anyway, um, I um, uh, the so the but the statues, right? Um, mm-hmm. The statues, which are, as we have proven in the pre quests, which led us all to be able to stand on this spot without dying, um, uh, is um, uh, you know, these are these are trapped fell spirits of the ancient world. Yeah. Um, and recently put here too, by the look of it. Recently put here too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and presumably now, Hmm. How recently? They don't have any mineral deposits on them. They're all in a straight line. Yeah. None of that could have happened if there was still water here. And I do maintain there was still water here. Look at the, look at the cliffs around us. Yeah. The cliffs up on the North. Yeah, I agree. So steep do indicate everything's been cut down by water. Oh, okay. How long are we going to stand here, man? Oh, just a while. I, I've got enough morale. I want to. I just wanted to look at the stonework. Yeah. Yeah, that top stone is not, uh, is not chipped. It's carved. Yep. It's not worn. It's roughly hewn, like many other things. Oh, yeah. here's a body that hasn't decomposed yet. Ooh, a fresh corpse. Fresh corpse. Wow. Well, fresher. Fresher, yeah. Okay. Of course, standing near it doesn't really help me to see when my yeah, entire screen Yeah, I know. My, my screen's getting fuzzy. narrower and yeah. narrower as the tread's taken over. Exactly. Um, I'm an elf, so I get it worse, probably. Oh, yeah. The other thing that bothers me is the fact that there doesn't seem to be any really good water sources here, which you definitely need for civilization. Right. Right. 
<clears throat> well, which the does sort of imply that this once was a, a good water location, which is why we have all the Hillman settlements around here. And after the water was probably, you know, polluted. Right. Either by, by spells or by physical activity. Though we haven't, we kind of blew past, there was a goblin settlement out on the western mm-hmm. side, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't think we've seen any evidence of any previous... I'm not going back to the statues. I'm just trying to go south around yeah. these big old things. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we have seen water, but it's all been like brackish standing water. Probably yes. not very good to drink. And what we also haven't seen are any ruins or any indication of any construction other than the statues themselves. Other than those statues, yep. Yeah. Um, which, of course, would be would be explicable in one, on one of two bases, right? <clears throat> Either this was always this kind of like volcanic basin, um, or uh, this was. Uh, Underwater, so there were no buildings here. Um, mm-hmm. Either one of those hypotheses would explain why we don't get any old, you know, building ruins out here in the middle yep. of this plain. Um, this would be a very large volcanic crater. But then again, I know Yellowstone is a very large volcanic crater, so. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And the other thing is, you know, what would explain the sudden salinity is if some sort of freshwater tributary got cut off, dammed, or dried up. Mm-hmm. That would change every. That would change all of the the makeup of the lake. That might be what led to this. But it's also clear that something evaporated. Like maybe it's the hot activity of the right. of the hot spring itself. But all the water has. Not just you know gone somewhere else or been deposited somewhere else. It looks like it's just dried up. Yeah, and the trees. I mean, again, I come back to those trees, right? Mm-hmm. If this had been, you know, like a even a hot bubbling salt lake from wall to wall in this valley mm-hmm. before, those trees would never have grown there. Nope. So, it's the trees more than anything that convince me that something happened, you know, whether it was the volcanic action itself, which is a recent thing. Mm-hmm. Let's see, where are we? Oh, we're still, we're still. Well, it d- does remind me, Tolkien always talks about the bad guys polluting the areas too, by building their, you know, satanic mills on right. England's green and pleasant land sort of thing. Right. But this is the first time it looks like some sort of natural nonsense has happened. Other stuff is like, this is dragon fire. This was raised by a god of destruction. This right. was you know, polluted by horrible machineries. The trees were cut down and the water sources polluted. This is the first one I've seen. It looks like some sort of magic or nature has taken hand to it. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how long ago that was, how we're supposed to understand that coming to be. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's the question is, how are these Hillmen surviving? Right, right. Well, I mean... I mean that, that would be, of course, be a way to maintain a hold on minions by pro- promising them stuff that they can't get from the landscape. Right, right. Now, there was... I mean, of course, there's water all over Algaier, and that is presumably fresh water. 
doesn't look fresh. Well, <laughs> it not awful. fresh in that sense, <laughs> but fresh in the sense of not being salt is is only is, a little bit of typhoid. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Now, as far as people were asking questions like, "What do the turtles eat?" Uh, the slugs. I, I I don't know. I mean, like, I really don't know. The what turtles eat the turtles. slugs, and the drakes eat the turtles. <laughs> bugs eat the corpses yeah and the slugs That's eat the point. bugs and so yeah it's got to be uh it's got they're leeches right you're right they're leeches not uh, uh draw a chart to put in the classroom yeah exactly i think there's we we have to assume an internal food chain uh because there doesn't seem to be much else um i, I one of the reasons i stopped right here is that right here we seem to be right at about the top of the uh discoloration at the bottom of the cliffs, right? Yep. Yeah. So if this was one's a lake, we are like our heads are at water level, essentially. Well yeah, this is where you you push your boat down into it. Exactly. Um back in the old days. So and who knows how old those days were. Um <laughs> but uh, yeah so now Amalia is pointing out we do have grass down around here, right? Mm-hmm. As we get closer to the uh to the mountains. Right, mm-hmm. we get we get grass. Um, it suggests that that island with that big huge fumarole on it was an island. Well, but that might have been pushed up since then by. Uh, yeah, we're not quite deposits. sure landscape wise what was here. Also, remember we saw the courtyard last week, and that would have had a beautiful view of whatever body of water this was. That would have been beachfront property. Yeah, we're yeah. That's I think that's what we said too. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Each friend. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go up here and see what we can learn about this settlement. Yep. Here's the lichen and moss and grasses coming back. Yeah. Starting A to blasted look. cedar tree here. Right. Okay. Gabil Shathur kind of gives away who lives here. <laughs> It's hobbits, right? No. <laughs> totally. What do you need? Okay. Yep, here's the dwarven masonry right here. Yes. Just like Othricar. Yeah. Yeah. Even with the bridges overhead and stuff. Not exactly mm-hmm. the same. Um, it's not all as kind of low slung as Othricar was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Othricar, you guys well remember, in northern North Downs. So this is all native dwarf architecture. That is, there's no evidence of, like, that dwarves moved in here and took over or built upon another settlement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see any architecture... That looks like it was not dwarvish, right? Yeah. So this, even these uh, hex hexagon uh, sideway uh, sidewalk tiles down here, the cobbles. Oh right, yeah, here. yeah, the cobbles. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Actually, you look at how they're laid and it looks mm-hmm. like they're not exactly cobbles 
Because you look oh, at like it, where they're scuffed up. These are not separate stones that are laid down with like mortar in between them. This looks like yeah. a solid, a solid floor of stone that has been carved in these hexagonal shapes or octagonal shapes. No. Yes. I don't know. Octagonal. You can get tiles like that at Home Depot and then the grass is just growing up in between it. <laughs> but uh, no, but it's not grass. So like you can see where it's been gouged, right? Places where it's been scarred. It's mm-hmm. stone underneath. So I don't think that grass is growing exactly in between. Maybe moss is growing on it, but I think that mm-hmm. this was solid stone. Yeah, that would make sense considering where we are. It's probably they probably carved this into this uh, little box canyon here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right. So, Amethorn, you ask exactly the sensible question: Do the dwarves here predate the hillmen in the region? Um, well, it's a good question. On the one hand, they're obviously very isolated. Whether or not Malinhad here was a single large body of attractive water at some point in the past, um, or whether it was always a stinking volcanic crater. Um, yeah, it's in either case, this settlement is firmly isolated from the land of the Hillmen. Like that, the, 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 the entire, you know, the, the entirety of the Malinhad stretches uh, in between them. So there wouldn't have been much spontaneous, uh, contact between the hillmen and the dwarves. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> now, we do have this whole mountain range, uh, which we can't climb up and which serves as the southern boundary of Malinhad, but which have, would, of course, not have been an impediment to the dwarves uh, tunneling Certainly around not. in it. Uh, this is probably where they came out at some point. Exactly. Which leads me to say, okay, what we need is to zoom out because we need to see where we are in the larger dwarf mountain range yeah, uh, uh, I was just doing that. Uh, uh, so we're here. So I'm going out to now looking at the whole map of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've got Moria down here following the Misty Mountains up. Angmar is just to the sort of, you know, east or, or sorry, the west side of the Misty. So up here where they turn... Uh, Mount Gundabad is right at the top of the Misty Mountains, where then they connect with this range that extends off to the east, uh, the, mm-hmm. the northern part of Rovani and off towards the Iron Hills. Um, so Mount Gundabad is right there. Angmar is over here south of Foradwife and, um, you know, up around these northern mountains. So again, if we go back to the Eriador map and look at this right here's the Misty Mountains. Um, this, the Eriador map is of course to a kind of a different scale. The Misty Mountains look sort of much stumpier, um, that is shorter north to south than, um, it's a, the, yeah, the, the distance from say Rivendell to Nankuranir is not at all to scale. Like it looks like (laughs) the Shire is twice as far from Rivendell as Rivendell is from Isengard, which is just not true. Um, yeah. However, um, it uh, just looking at it where it is in in respect with the mountains. Now, so we know that there have been obviously 
dwarf populations. We've got Moria underneath here, um, down towards Eregion over here. So again, looking at just the Eriador map, we have, you know, you think of uh, Moria proper being just to the east of Eregion down here. Um, but of course, within the game world, they imagined the um, the caverns of the dwarves extending far north into the Misty Mountains um, so that in the Misty Mountain region, you know, we had all that dwarf population up here, uh, ultimately up to Heligrod, right? Yeah. And am I remembering correctly, was Heligrod originally... It was it was a, it was like Moria North, right? I mean, it was part of the it was the people of Durin. It was the Longbeards who originally made Heligrod, right? Within the game yeah. world, I think. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that's what I because I was I know when I was first exploring the Misty Mountains, I was uh, I was very curious. I was very interested to find that that there were dwarves there and wondering what relation that bore to Moria, or whether they were imagining this to be the southernmost um edges of uh, um uh of a different dwarf clan um yeah you will remember was it here yes it was when we did forakel we were looking around forakel and we were looking at the not only the dwarvish settlement at Ziegelgrund in forakel uh-huh. But even more interestingly, the ruins that we saw way up in the north, north of Kuru Lairi, um, oh, yeah. on the western side of the bay, which seemed to be remnants of dwarf uh, architecture from before the breaking of the world, you know, from before um, the sinking of Beleriand, because um, that's the Blue Mountains, like the northern branches of the old Blue Mountains. Um, mm-hmm. Where you know great dwarf settlements were, you know, the, uh, of which Nogrod and Belagost were the were the capitals. Yeah. So, anyway, my point is that there's <laughs> lots of reasons to think there's there's lots of reasons not to be surprised that as you uh, uh, as you said, dwarves came out of the mountains here, right, um, in this spot, and given how ancient are the dwarf settlements throughout the Misty Mountains, and even more so um, over in the Blue Mountains and way up in the north here, from dating from before, you know, the end of the First Age uh, of the Sun, we know that, anyway, there's no reason to be surprised to find random dwarf settlements. And I kind of like the fact that the Lotro folks have availed themselves of the opportunity to bring in, like, random dwarf settlements in, like, any... Basically, anywhere where there's mountains, you might come across dwarves. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, and it's it's kind of fun just to see. That, oh, you're here. Or of course, why not? Why wouldn't we be? Exactly. Yeah. No, it's it is fun, and and it works. I mean, it works for me anyway. I have no problems with it. Um, and uh, 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 and yeah, it does give them fun opportunities to to introduce dwarf elements uh, and storylines in uh, many of the different areas where you would not otherwise expect to find them. Um, and in a place like Angmar, you need that kind of levity after a while. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was very surprised and quite pleasantly surprised uh, to find this charming, attractive uh, little dwarf, you know, colony here uh, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Angmar. Um outpost. This is like the last stop on the line that nobody uses on the train, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, 
Placing it historically, um, I don't remember if we get um, if we get any like what kind of in-game backstory we get about how long these dwarves have been here. Um, on the one hand, it's obviously not like brand new. I mean, this wasn't built in a day, so um, obviously they've been here for some little time. It's hard for me to imagine that it was meant to be very recent, because why would they do it? I mean, talk about the middle of nowhere, right? I mean... Also, heading into trouble where you don't need to. I'm not sure yeah. mineral deposits would be worth uh, this kind of attention. Right. Well, you know, on the one hand, um, the uh, you could imagine dwarves... If there were enough minerals here, you could imagine dwarves daring it despite the fact that it was imprudent um but yeah okay oh hang on a second we've got some uh deed text william is texting here so okay hang on um uh the dwarf mining outpost of gabo shathur was unwisely founded okay right good unwisely founded shortly before the recent revival of the powers of angmar okay now these poor souls are trapped holding out against hope that they can survive and be rescued before the Fist of Angmar falls upon them. Okay. So... It calls it a mining outpost. Okay, now that makes sense. That makes sense, then. What wouldn't Uh make sense is a trade outpost, because they have no access to anybody. I mean, the only people with whom they could trade before before the, you know, Angmarim revival appear... Um, would be the Hillman. And this is, they came out in the wrong spot <laughs> if they were wanting to trade with the Hillman. Uh, there are plenty of mountains out of which they could have emerged uh, much closer to Alkire or any of them, right? Um, if they had wanted to. So this would have been a terrible trade outpost, but a mining outpost, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's a mining outpost built within the last few centuries. Okay. Sure. That makes sense to me. Um, hey, is this the dude I was right, supposed to find? Hey, look, I can turn in my quest. Um, <laughs> so it looks like there there are actually are quite a few gemstones that do grow in salt deposits. I can believe just, this. Just I can idly. believe this. Okay, so here we have dwarves drawn here by the, the hope of uh, profit, but Paradox, now they're in trouble mostly. because now the uh, Angmar has arisen again, and they could be in in difficulties. Um, <laughs> Boomful says the first three outposts sank into the toxic swamp. Um, <laughs> yeah. Third one yes. fell down, burnt down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. <laughs> the fourth one, yeah. Well, uh, architecture style, I mean, I think we could date this to the same period as Othricar would have been built, though. Yes, I, I think it does look like Othricar, much more like Othricar than, um, well, certainly than Moria. Mm-hmm. Um, and Othricar was also weird because there didn't seem to be any immediate shelters. Everyone was just sort of, you know, outdoors mm-hmm. the whole time. While the mines were the things that were locked under, this one looks like there's more room to spare. Right? Are there mines? Are, are these mines? I think we're supposed to believe they are. The right. I know we can't go down. I mean, it into goes any right into there. the rock face. 
Yeah. I guess, yes, presumably the mine entrances would be somewhere behind some of these doors that don't open, right? Some of these would be residences yeah. and whatnot, but... Again, I'm thinking of Othricar, where there were, like, clear mines, whereas here we... Yeah, it might just be a transportation route. Yeah. They go out, they mine the Paradots, they bring them up here and transport them to wherever they need to go. Yeah. Via goat. Yep. Okay. So that's cool. see they got their wagons here. (laughs) Yes. So we have a relatively recent... uh, So this is not a relic of ancient days. This is a new entrepreneurial, comparatively new, entrepreneurial dwarf uh, attempt. High-risk, high-yield venture. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh, it's getting late. All right. We should probably end here. Um, (laughs) We'll explore the far eastern reaches. I think next time I want to go... Uh, well, going directly to Gathforth near might be vain, as uh, it's not going to help with quick travel anyway. So I think maybe we'll just take the slow way there, since I probably won't be quick traveling anyway. So um, anyway, what I would like to do is to go up the main road, uh, go up the main road uh, up towards Imlad Balkorth and around through there and explore up through into Himbar and Barad Gularan and all these other really interesting locations here uh, in the north-central part of uh, of Angmar. Okay. So having come through the Malanhad, the middle of the Malanhad and down into the southern parts uh, to see uh, Gabul Shuthur down here, I want to go on the northern bank of the Malanhad uh, and then up into the northern reaches and we'll get out, maybe we'll get out towards the rift and, and, and certainly ultimately work our way up to Karn Doom uh, as the great climax of our Angmarim exploration. Um, which server are we on next week? We're on Crick Hollow. So once again, make sure all of your alts have finished book six up to the completion of uh, the Warding Stones. That's right. So, okay. So, yes. Quest is started in Esteldeen. Excellent. Yeah. Actually, I found I had to go to Rivendell. Um, Rivendell? Yeah, I had to go to Aragorn and Rivendell to send me to Dyrvon in Esteldeen. Oh, of course, of course. Which is the thing that you get when you complete book... So if you've completed book five... Book five, then you, you can pick it up at Esteldeen, but yeah, I had to go all the way back to Rivendell like, first. Yeah, you got the Silithir, by the way. Go over here now. Right, exactly, exactly. All right. Okay, very good. So thanks, everybody, for coming along. This is an interesting exploration here. Love to think think my way through, uh, uh, through Angmar here. Um, so, uh, again, next week, I always pause and like, am I forgetting that I'm not going to be here next week? No, I will be here next week. It's the week after next. <laughs> I probably won't be here, but I will be here next week. Um, so, awesome. uh, I will uh, look forward to joining you guys again next week when we start book 11 and then, uh, begin the exploration of kind of the heart of, uh, of, uh, the Angmarim territory here. Um, But, uh, all right, thanks very much. So thanks, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. 
If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.